We left on November 1st, arrived in the Philippines on November 20th, and uh, four months later, I was a POW. Most people remember that Pearl Harbor was bombed early one Sunday morning, which meant that it was still nighttime in the Philippines. But uh, when the sun came up in the Philippines, nine and a half hours later, uh, here came the, uh, the Japanese bombers and the, uh, their, their fighting planes. And would you believe that just like they caught all of our ships uh, at Pearl Harbor, uh, in the harbor, and sunk most of them, would you believe that they caught all of our airplanes on the ground, destroying most of them? It was called a death march, not of how many died, of the 12,000 Americans, only about 1,700 lived to come home. But they call it a death march because of the way they died. If you stopped on the road, you were killed. If you had a malaria attack, they killed you. If you had to stop to defecate, they killed you. If you just couldn't take another step, they killed you. And uh, I was glad that we had the work to do. That Not that I wanted anybody to be wounded, but it kept my thoughts on what I something besides what was happening outside. And I remember uh, looking out after the bombing and seeing Manila on fire. It was all around us. And I could hear the patients screaming for help. And how did they kill you? They'd either bayonet you to death, shoot you, or in some cases decapitate you. They did not give us water. They gave us no food. The temperature was about 108 degrees. The, the Americans that were captured, a, a good 80% of them had malaria. Another 50% had dysentery. So we were gunshot wounds, malaria, dysentery, and we had to walk this distance that they wanted us to. Under these conditions, it was, it was unbearable. Welcome back, everyone, to part two of Hell in the Philippines, 1942 to 1945, a bloody three years. Subtitle, I Will Return, which was the promise that MacArthur made after Corregidor, the rock, the last bastion of freedom in the Philippines, fell, and the American commanders left in charge after MacArthur's removal surrendered 78,000 soldiers, sailors, marines, and even nurses to the Japanese Imperial Forces, the largest group of American commanded forces in history to be surrendered, believing that surrender was the only option to being wiped out completely, which it wasn't, and naively believing that Japan would honor their promise to treat all the prisoners according to the terms set up in the Geneva Convention, which the Japanese had signed, but never ratified. In this episode, we will cover the Bataan Death March, guerrilla fighting and resistance in the Philippines during the three-year Japanese occupation, the story of the nurses known as the Angels of Bataan and Corregidor, the Japanese prison camps, the war crime known as the Rape of Manila, the involvement of the mysterious Japanese Colonel Suji in determining how prisoners of the Japanese should be dealt with, 
the successful raid on Cabanatuan by the 6th Army Rangers, and some backstory about the making of the John Wayne film Back to Bataan. When Corregidor fell, about 4,000 of the 11,000 American and Filipino prisoners of war from Corregidor were marched through the streets of Manila to facilities at Port Santiago and Bilivid Prison, which were criminal detention centers turned POW camps. General Wainwright, then a lieutenant general, was sent to a number of prison camps, first in Luzon, then to Formosa, and finally to Manchuria. Wainwright was a fighter, a Midwesterner, who fought alongside his troops all the way back down the Bataan Peninsula, and was thin in stature, earning himself the nickname of Skinny from his close officer associates. Being the highest-ranking American officer captured, he was subjected to what indignities the Japanese could conjure up, including having to bow and salute to them on a daily basis. This was the hardest for him. The depredations and lack of food and prison conditions paled in comparison to that one. When the Russians finally captured the Japanese prison camp in Manchuria and sent Wainwright to Brisbane, he looked barely alive his hair having turned bright white, his skin all patchy and dried up, and his already thin body having reached bones due to his starvation in the camp. When MacArthur, not having had to suffer the depredations of war in prison or on the battle lines, first saw him, he was shocked and saddened. Later, Wainwright was given a hero's welcome in the U.S., and deservedly so, although the surrender was pinned on him. It was actually General King who had started that rolling. And Wainwright opposed King's decision. Still defended King's decision to MacArthur and took the responsibility of making the public statement of surrender. A thin guy, but with mighty big shoulders. About ten to 12,000 of the surrendered American and Filipino soldiers eventually escaped from the march to form guerrilla units in the mountains tying down the occupying Japanese as best they could. We'll get to the story of the guerrilla forces in a little while. Other thousands were placed on Japanese ships and transported to slave labor camps in Japan and elsewhere. Many of the, pe many of the people who were shipped to slave labor camps when U.S. subs sank those unmarked ships. Examples? On September 7, 1944, the Japanese ship Shinyo Maru was sunk by the sub USS Paddle. On board the Shinyo Maru were a large group of U.S. POWs who had been sent from the Philippines by the Japanese, probably to work in slave labor camps in Japan. 668 died, and only 82 survived. In October of 1944, a contingent of 1,600 American prisoners were taken from the prison camp Cabanatuan and put in the hold of the Oryokumaro. On the deck above the prisoners, roughly 2,000 Japanese nationalists were traveling in high class. The group comprised of businessmen and their families, now leaving while they could. The American POWs were locked down into the dark, dank hold with no food save for a bucket of rice thrown down upon the floor or water. Their only companions were flies, vomit, and feces. After a period of time, the men began to go crazy 
and by the first night, fifty of them had died. On the second day, American planes began strafing the decks, and the men cheered. And then the bombs began hitting the ship. The ship ran aground. There were wounded women and children up above, and the prisoners could hear them wailing. Within a period of twenty-four hours, three hundred more Americans had died. The few survivors were finally released from the hold when the ship ran aground, then later put on the Enora Matu, which headed for Formosa. During that voyage, an average of five prisoners died per day from lack of food and water and medical care. The ship was then bombed by American planes, there being no way for the pilots to tell that the ships were carrying prisoners of war. Those ships were supposed to be marked with red crosses. Of the 1,600 that had left Manila, nearly 700 were now dead. The remaining Americans were loaded onto the Brazil Maru, and it is believed that they died in prison camps in Japan, with the exception of a few who stayed alive throughout the war and were finally rescued and were able to tell the story. It's almost impossible to imagine the hardships experienced by these American prisoners. In the Philippines, Camp O'Donnell was the worst of the Japanese prison camps, claiming at least 15,000 lives of Filipino soldiers and 3,000 American soldiers on Luzon. When the Japanese attacked the Philippines, U.S. Army and Navy nurses were serving at the Steinberg General Hospital in Manila. These were the women nurses who came to be called the Angels of Bataan and Corregidor. The Army nurses under the command of Captain Maud Davidson and 2nd Lieutenant Josephine Nesbitt were involved heavily in the ground battle on Luzon, setting up tent hospital camps in the jungles, where they suffered right along with the soldiers from malaria and dysentery, while nursing the constant stream of wounded and sick soldiers that were being transported to the field hospitals. The Navy nurses, under the command of Lieutenant Laura Cobb, stayed in Manila until Bataan fell, at which point they were moved to Corregidor. The women in command of these nurse groups showed incredible bravery and fortitude in the face of extremely harsh and terrifying war conditions, and they kept the others' spirits up, regardless of the situations they faced. Most of the soldiers they treated were placed on blankets and cots outdoors on the ground, where they were plagued by flies and mosquitoes carrying malaria. They had up to 18 open-air wards operating, and those wards had to be packed up and moved when the front got too close or came under mortar and bomb attack. In the four months of fighting on the Bataan Peninsula, and then Corregidor, the Angels treated over 6,000 soldiers, while seeing their food rations and quinine slowly disappear. When Bataan fell, the nurses were moved to the underground tunnels at Corregidor in Manila Bay. That tunnel system was called the Malita Tunnel, and that was hell underground, safe only from the constant bombardment that shook concrete down on the wounded and often turned out lights and power, but not safe from darkness, insects, and the screams of the wounded. After the Bataan surrender came on April 9, 1942, one dozen of the nurses on May 3rd escaped to Australia on the sub Spearfish. The others, knowing full well what their fate would be, volunteered to stay at their posts in the Malinta Tunnel, dressing wounds and administering medications amid constant shelling by Japanese forces. On May 6th, Corregidor fell, and the nurses with the remaining Americans 
were taken as prisoners of war. The army nurses were removed to Santo Tomas internment camp in Manila, where they ran the camp hospital that ministered to soldiers, nurses, and captive civilians. Over the course of two years, two very courageous army officers named Nurse Josephine Nesbitt and Captain Davison maintained morale by imposing structure within their ranks and requiring nurses to work at least four-hour shifts each day, even as the Japanese cut the POW's daily rations to 700 calories a day. The calorie deprivation became so bad that some nurses reportedly prepared weeds, roots, and flowers, which they sautéed in cold cream. Lieutenant Cobb and her Navy nurses were transferred to a new compound at Los Banos. During and after the war, in the U.S., Hollywood romanticized the nurses' situation in patriotic movies such as They Were Expendable, Cry Havoc, and So Proudly We Hail, that one starring Claudette Colbert. The reality, however, was very different from the Hollywood portrayal. Said nurse Helen Cassiani Nestor, Let me tell you, there was nothing romantic about it. She also said, Our group of women proved they could go into the field and carry on and do a good job. And people need to know that. In January of 1944, control of Santo Tomas was taken out of Japanese civilian authority hands and transferred to the Japanese Imperial Army, which reduced rations to near-starving levels. The diet was reduced to the aforementioned 960 calories a day, which, as those of you who count calories know, is a skin-and-bones diet. As an example of the care given by the Japanese captors, Captain Maud Davidson's body weight dropped from 156 pounds to 80 pounds. Nearly 50% of her body weight lost due to enforced Japanese starvation rations. In January of 1945, Allied forces finally turned back the Japanese. That story coming, and retook the Philippine Islands. Shortly thereafter, all POWs, including Nesbitt, Davidson, Cassiani, and the other nurses were liberated. Seventy-seven nurses made it through alive, and still nursing, until the last day. And then there was the Bataan Death March. Somewhere between fifty and eighty thousand surrendered troops, no one's quite sure of the number, needed to be moved northward up the Bataan Peninsula and beyond to prison camps, and there were no trucks available for that job. At the time they were being moved out of their temporary barbed wire enclosures and pointed north, the Japanese were racing southward along the same routes, trying to get artillery set up on the southern tip of the Bataan Peninsula so they could fire on Corregidor. Throughout the forced march, Japanese guards were attempting to keep a fast pace for their 70,000 prisoners, many of whom were starving, exhausted, sick with dysentery, and suffering from various forms of malarial infection as well as bullet and shrapnel wounds. Try to picture, if you will, a line of prisoners, four men wide, miles long, stumbling northward in the tropical heat, half dead from exhaustion and dehydration from the start, with many dropping and weaving, others being supported by their mates. Some Japanese guards had compassion for them. Many did not. Passing convoys of Japanese soldiers would hit them in the head with their rifle butts when the driver took them close enough. In some cases, the drivers would swerve and run over some of the prisoners, killing them 
causing peals of laughter from the Japanese infantrymen watching over the sides of the back of the trucks. By day two, in the 108-degree heat, things went from bad to worse. By day two, the patience of the guards had worn down, and the pressure to reach their destination had been pressing down from their high command. The guards began a process of extermination by bayonet, sword, and rifle. Theirs was a strange culture, the soldiers and officers having been indoctrinated into the Bushido Code, the ultimate peer pressure that taught them that to surrender was the greatest shame, shame not only for themselves, but for the family they had left behind. And now they'd been entrusted with the lives of tens of thousands of surrendered men. In the Japanese soldiers' way of thinking, those prisoners were not men. They were less than men, because they'd surrendered. They were animals to be shamed, and they'd be treated like animals. The biggest proponent of killing not some, but all of the captured Americans, and of making a public spectacle out of killing any civilians who did as much as hand food to the American captives, was Colonel Masanobu Tsuji during the Philippines' campaign. Tsuji, although only a colonel, was closely connected with the Japanese hierarchy, and had held a tremendous amount of sway with the military decisions and workings of the Imperial Army. He, probably more than anyone else, deserved to be hung for war crimes in the Philippines, and elsewhere, but was never caught. He painted a mysterious aura around his bespectacled self, claiming that he couldn't be killed or captured, and developed a cadre of junior officers who worshipped the hollowed ground he walked on. General Hama intensely disliked him, and the feeling was mutual. Suji was close to Tojo, and had pushed hard for the invasion of Pearl Harbor and the Philippines. After the capture of Singapore, Suji was responsible for the slaughter of tens of thousands of Malayan Chinese. This action was then, and is today, called the Suk Ching, S-O-O-K-C-H-I-N-G, for your World War II history researchers. And it was called Suk Ching at the War Trials, from which Tsuji, the instigator and the mastermind, escaped when he, along with others in his command, dressed themselves as monks and hid out for three years in Thailand, and then went to China, and then returned to Japan, where there he was hailed as an academic and a hero in 1948, writing a book titled 3000 Li in Hiding. Li meaning Chinese miles, which turned out to be a bestseller in Japan. For his war crimes, he should have been hung. But in the case of the Bataan Death March? In Japanese articles which talk about Colonel Tsuji, these war crime qualifying actions are not even spoken of, and Tsuji is apparently hailed today as a World War II military hero in Japan. The few alive who were still following Tsuji's exploits were very surprised when he disappeared in April of 1961 while on a trip to Laos. Maybe someone caught up with him. There were vigilantes on the prowl for ex-Nazi and ex-Japanese war criminals. But if anyone knows, they're not telling. On April 10, 1942, Sergeant A.B. Abraham was in a group of surrendered American soldiers that had been ordered to stop and stand at attention on the side of the East Road on Bataan, near a spring that was bubbling out of the jungle. For five minutes, they stared at the spring, Lips parched, bodies aching with pain that only water could quench. Abraham was a staff sergeant in the 1st Battalion of the 31st Infantry. 
"'Some of the men standing next to him "'were still wearing their hospital gowns, "'their wounds freshly bleeding, "'the bandages having torn away from the constant marching. "'Others were coughing. "'One of the men suddenly broke and ran for the spring, "'fell to the ground, and drank. "'A Japanese guard came up behind him, "'shouted at him, "'and as Abraham turned to watch, "'the guard unsheathed his sword "'and swung it fast, "'neatly decapitating the American soldier, "'whose head rolled off into the spring and sank. "'The body was still suspended in an upright position "'for a few seconds until it, too, "'followed the head and fell into the spring, "'leaving an obvious sign for all of the rest who followed "'that the same fate awaited "'and that the life-giving water was not available. "'For the prisoners who had been fighting "'a non-stop war of attrition for months, day and night, It was a brutal reminder of not only who they were dealing with, but the fact that they were forever doomed to watch without lifting a hand. They were unarmed and helpless. Those who could escape did. Those who couldn't, for the most part, died slow deaths from starvation and sickness. The shortage of quinine from the moment they first hit the jungles ended up killing most of them. The Bataan Death March prisoners learned firsthand how adept the Japanese were with their bayonets as well. Usually they went for the abdomen, driving the blade in deep and then giving it a Z-twist to make sure that even if their victim were to live, his insides were turned to jelly. Then they would place a foot on their captive's chest so that they could pull the blade out. Then they would take special care to wipe the blood off their blade. This was a fastidious job which required slow and proper care while their victim was dying under their boot was almost a way of shaming the victim and those who watched. Many a Japanese soldier who might not have been able to distinguish himself on the battlefield now had the chance to show how coolly and easily he could kill. It has been estimated that somewhere between 750 and 1,300 Americans and four to 5,000 Filipinos died along the 75-mile trek to Camp O'Donnell, the death march on Bataan. The means of death, exhaustion, neglect, disease, succumbing to war wounds, and or outright murder by their guards. Defenders of the Japanese say that the atrocity wasn't premeditated. In the case of the death march, it was really just lack of planning on the part of the Japanese. They didn't expect so many prisoners. But when you look at the actions of many Japanese throughout World War II, and the tens of thousands of murders of prisoners, It was a very and faulty war culture, promoted and allowed by leaders like Colonel Tsuji, with the approval of Tojo. No less intense than the Nazi war culture that killed millions, the only difference being that the Japanese could and often did kill any captured soldier or civilian they came in contact with who was not Japanese. And man, woman, or child made no difference. The Nazi prison camps for captured American and British soldiers were not known for atrocities. Their Jewish and Slavic extermination camps, yes, that's another story, and one that's been well publicized. What can we learn from all this? Why even share these stories? Number one, to honor all those who fought and those who assisted them in their fight. Number two, because we can never forget that murderous warlike cultures have always existed and will always exist. 
They cannot be appeased or trusted or allowed to have weapons or credos of murder, genocide, or mass destruction. They will not go away and leave you alone, and you cannot cover your eyes and ears and wish them away. And we can't do this story on the Philippines during World War II without discussing the atrocities committed by the Japanese, which is interwoven throughout the entire Japanese invasion and occupation there. Once a society turns soft and forgets, they are doomed to repeat history. That's why stories like this need to be told. Honor the heroes who stand up to them and never forget their sacrifice. Moving on. As we mentioned in Part 1, just weeks before the surrender, on December 26, 1941, Manila and its population of 625,000 people was declared an open city, meaning that it was not defended and that it should not be attacked. The idea here was to save as many civilian lives as possible. So they hung signs reading, Open City, No Shooting, at all the entrances. They wrote that in English, knowing that many of the Japanese high officers, including General Hama, had taken advantage of American schools. The terrified residents, having heard of Japanese atrocities that had already occurred during the invasion here and elsewhere in the Pacific, began clogging the roads of escape and heading for the jungle. As for the city of Manila, President Quezon had advised Dr. Jose Laurel to stay behind and cooperate in the civil administration of the Japanese occupation. Whether it was good advice or not, President Quezon had hoped that with the cooperation of the Filipinos, the occupation might be less severe. As one journalist historian quipped, Following Laurel's morally ambiguous example, the Philippine elite, with regrettably few exceptions, collaborated extensively with the Japanese in their harsh exploitation of the country. President Laurel and his wartime government was despised by the people. In the beginning, Japan set up a puppet Philippine government out of Manila while resistors were killed or imprisoned, and 1,000 Philippine women were basically ordered from their homes in order to serve as comfort women for Japanese soldiers and officers. There were a number of Japanese prison camps scattered throughout the Philippines, and most, but not all, resulted in the starvation and death of most of their prisoners. The exception was one of the largest camps, being Camp Santo Tomas in Manila, which held over 5,000 prisoners, men, women, and children, civilians who were in Manila when the surprise attack came, government workers, businessmen, nurses, most of them civilians who were in Manila when the surprise attack came. They were of multiple nationalities, British, Australian, Indian, American, and more, from all walks of life, business, mining, sales, nursing, teaching. There were married couples, priests, families, government workers, all now prisoners of the Japanese for the next three years. They were basically left to govern themselves and placed under local government authorities, and atrocities were not committed there. Although as the war dragged on, the Japanese occupiers did murder escapees and then limited the prisoners' food, resulting in the internees having lost 33% of their body weight by the time they were freed, as previously mentioned. But things got very ugly there in Manila toward the end, in 1945, 
as 20,000 Japanese soldiers, acting in revenge when American forces returned to the Philippines, went on a rape and murder spree that resulted in the deaths of over 10,000 civilians in a period of just a few days, one of the most dastardly yet least known war crimes in history, today called the Rape of Manila. We will cover that, sparing much of the gory detail as was told by witnesses during the war crime trials in the story to come. The most serious long-term consequence of World War II on the Philippines was to aggravate and embitter its internal social divisions. While most of the Allied forces on Corregidor surrendered, many individuals continued fighting as guerrillas. The great mass of surrendered troops was on the south end of Bataan, and they'd been ordered to destroy their weapons and ammunition. They also did what they could to disable their trucks and equipment so the Japanese couldn't use it and found their way into the jungles and joined guerrilla and resistance camps. The great majority of the Philippine people mounted a remarkably effective resistance to the Japanese occupation. Investigations after the war showed that 260,000 Filipinos had been actively engaged in guerrilla organizations, and an even larger number operated covertly in the anti-Japanese underground. By the end of the war, the Japanese had effective control in only 12 of the country's 48 provinces. The largest guerrilla organization was the Huck Balahap, called the Hucks, which stands for People's Anti-Japanese Army, and that was led by Louis Taruk. He had armed some 30,000 guerrillas who controlled most of Luzon. The Hucks began their campaign working as five 100-man units. They received their arms and ammunition from Philippine Army stragglers who just wanted to go home or were too incapacitated to fight, and traded them civilian clothes in return for the arms. Because Taruk was an avowed socialist, the Americans steered clear of him, but he was deadly effective on Japanese, killing at least, by some counts, 20,000 Japanese occupiers. For a while his units included the Wachi, or Chinese Communists, who had a hand in the fighting, but that group of about 700 men ended up going their own way in 1943. On the central islands, called the Visayas, American-led Philippine guerrilla bands were able to get captured intelligence when a plane carrying Japanese Admiral Koga crashed en route to Deveo, killing Koga and many others, with the exception of 12 high-ranking Japanese officers and a briefcase full of sealed orders. The papers contained vital battle plans and defensive strategies, one of which was their determination that MacArthur would be landing in the southern island of Mindanao when he did come. The Japanese launched a desperate search for that briefcase, burning villages, torturing civilians, and captured guerrillas for information. But getting none, they finally came to believe that no one knew what had happened to the papers. So they assumed they were lost at sea. In truth, the guerrilla leader James Cushing had forwarded them via submarine to HQ, and MacArthur ended up making many of his decisions based on that intel, one of which was his choice of landing on Luzon rather than Mindanao. There were female guerrilla leaders also who performed heroically against the occupation, and one of these was Captain Nieves Fernandez, who fought the Japanese in Tacloban. She extensively trained her men in combat skills, especially the types that required no weapons, 
because weapons were hard to come by in some of those provinces, and was so effective that the Japanese posted a 10,000 peso reward on her, dead or alive. On the island of Leyte, Ruperto Canglion was instrumental in gathering intelligence for Americans like Wendell Fertig, who was Army Corps of Engineers and who was known for his red goatee. In her book, The Hidden Battle of Leyte, the picture diary of a girl taken by the Japanese military, Ramidios Filias described how the Filipino guerrillas saved the lives of many of the young Filipino girls who had been or were about to be raped by their Japanese occupiers. In her account of the Battle of Baruin, she describes how Filipino resistance wiped out entire Japanese platoons who had been threatening villages in that community. Then there were Moros warlords who hated and killed everyone, like Datu Buzran Kela, who bragged that he killed Americans, Filipinos, and Japanese. Didn't matter to him. When Japanese Major Hiramatsu sent a force to kill him, he wiped them out. He had a force of 20,000 men, so he was no one to mess with. American guerrilla leaders had to have good intelligence to know who they could unite with and who they had to watch out for. By the end of the war, there were over 1,000 guerrilla outfits in the Philippines, out of which only 277 were recognized by the Americans as being deserving of benefits or medals. And when Truman became president, he said that, yes, we owe many of them a debt of gratitude, but we can't give benefits to people who are not connected to the Commonwealth and who are fighting against other guerrilla groups and sometimes Americans, like the Hucks and the Moros. Luzon, the northernmost island in the Philippines, is a large island. It's mountainous and it's jungled and provides good cover for small guerrilla bands of fighters. And these bands were constantly growing from the influx of American soldiers. And many of these guerrilla bands consisted of tough, loincloth-clad native tribesmen called the Negritos and Filipino men who preferred to fight this type of warfare and deserted their army units or joined when they were old enough to carry a weapon. One large and very tough guerrilla outfit was run by a woman named Ye Panlilo, who was a journalist with the Philippines Herald before the war. She was described as the brains behind Markings Guerrillas, which often feuded with Hunter's Guerrillas, led by Eleuterio Terry Advizo, and those feuds often resulted in gunfights, kidnappings, and executions, which tells you what happens when civil government fails to function and gangs are running the show. The one positive out of all this was that most of them had one thing in common. They all hated the Japanese occupiers. There were 12 and 13-year-old Filipino boys in those resistance groups, many who had become orphans and had nowhere else to turn. As the fighting, which began in January of 1942 and lasted until August of 1945, intensified, many locals were driven by revenge for what the Japanese were doing to their homeland and families. Some guerrilla groups operated without scruples in manners similar to the Japanese, and these were feared by all sides. Many Americans over the course of the three and a half years joined guerrilla groups. Those Americans had either evaded capture or refused to surrender, forming resistance groups, which the U.S. military welcomed, needing all the help they could get. When the time finally came to raid Cabanatuan or get supplies to the guerrillas or finally to retake the Philippines, these groups were vital to the success of those missions. 
Here are the stories of some of those resistance fighters. Bernard L. Anderson was a U.S. Army Corps major. He formed the Kalayan Command in Tayabas province that focused on providing intelligence to the U.S. military. He was linked up to Filipino guerrilla Alejo Santos in the Balucan military area north of Manila. Between them, they commanded 7,000 men. Robert Arnold commanded military and guerrillas of the 15th Infantry Regiment, Philippine Army, which operated in Locos Norte. His 30 American soldiers joined forces with Walter Cushing's miners. He later joined Captain Guillermo Nakar's outfit. Cushing's miners was led by Walter Mickey Cushing, who was a civilian mining executive, who, after the Japanese attacked, organized his miners and soon joined forces with Robert Arnold's men. Mickey's brother, Lieutenant Charles Cushing, ran another guerrilla camp, which included miners Herb Swick and Enoch French, and Charles became Joseph Barker's district commander. Barker commanded the east-central Luzon guerrilla area. Narker was captured in Manila while, while disguised as a priest and was bayoneted to death by the Japanese Kampatai, or special police, at Manila North Cemetery on the 2nd of October, 1943. Henry Clay Connor Jr. married the sister of a Negrito chief and founded Squadron 155, comprised of Negrito warriors, to gather intel, and harassed the Japanese. Young James Kerrigan, U.S. Marine Private First Class, survived Corregidor, was captured, and escaped from Bilibib Prison with the help of two Filipinos, Moises and Jesus Gonzalez, and became the commandant of the HQ of the Central Luzon Guerrilla Forces. He finally retired from the USMC in 1958 and lived to 2008. Jesus Gonzalez, who had saved him and fought with him, visited him at the Destrahan Nursing Home 11 days before Kerrigan died. Robert Lapham was a U.S. Army Philippine scout and wartime guerrilla major on Luzon commanding 14,000 men. He was the one who warned General Kruger of the planned Japanese mass murder of American prisoners at Cabanatuan, that story to come, which set that raid in motion. For all of them, the guerrilla life was extremely dangerous. Living in the jungle had its own set of dangers, but killing Japanese soldiers and living to tell about it was a hard game. One thing the guerrilla fighting in the Philippines gave us that not many people are aware of are U.S. Special Forces. Resistance leaders Wendell Ferdig, Russell W. Volkerman, and Donald Blackburn would incorporate what they learned fighting with the Philippine guerrillas to establish what would become the U.S. Special Forces. It was the steadfastness of the Philippine soldiers and civilians in believing that America would return and never giving up their fight that we owe our thanks and the Philippine nation owes its freedom. That can't be repeated enough. Those were bleak, dark days without much hope. Names like Juan Pejota and Edward Hosun, who protected U.S. Army Rangers from a counterattack while trying to rescue a prison camp, deserve national hero status. After three years of Japanese occupation and a grueling war in the Pacific, the tide had turned against the Japanese, and the Americans, with General MacArthur at the helm, were headed toward Luzon and Manila to even the score. After leaving Corregidor, MacArthur and his family had traveled by boat 
560 miles to the Philippine island of Mindanao. On March 17th, the general and his family boarded a B-17 Flying Fortress for northern Australia. It was during this journey that he was informed that there were far fewer Allied troops in Australia than he had hoped, which meant relief of his forces trapped in the Philippines would have to wait. Deeply disappointed, he issued a statement to the press in which he promised his men and the people of the Philippines, I shall return. That promise would become his mantra during the next two and a half years, and he would repeat it often in public appearances. After the U.S. victory at the Battle of Midway in June of 1942, most Allied resources in the Pacific went to U.S. Admiral Chester Nimitz, who, as commander of the Pacific Fleet, planned a more direct route to Japan than via the Philippines. Undaunted, MacArthur launched a major offensive in New Guinea, winning a string of victories with his limited forces. By September 1944, he was poised to launch an invasion of the Philippines, but he needed the support of Nimitz's Pacific Fleet. After a period of indecision about whether to invade the Philippines or Taiwan, then called Formosa, the Joint Chiefs put their support behind MacArthur's plan, which logistically could be carried out sooner than a Formosa invasion. On October 20, 1944, a few hours after his troops landed at Leyte Gulf on Luzon, MacArthur took advantage of his camera team and waded ashore onto the Philippine island of Leyte. That day he made a radio broadcast in which he declared, People of the Philippines, I have returned. In January of 1945, his forces invaded the main Philippine island of Luzon. In February, Japanese forces at Bataan were cut off and Corregidor was recaptured. Manila, the Philippine capital, fell from Japanese hands in March, and in June, MacArthur announced his offensive operations on Luzon to be at an end, although scattered Japanese resistance continued until the end of the war in August. Only a small percentage of the men MacArthur had left behind in March of 1942 had survived to see his return. I'm a little late, he told them, but we finally came. On the Japanese side, before the battle, deciding that he would be unable to defend Manila with the forces available to him and to preserve as large a force as possible in the rural mountain Luzon region of the Philippines, General Tomoyuki Yamashita, according to his testimony during the war trials, had insisted on a complete withdrawal of Japanese troops from Manila in January of 1945. However, he testified that his order was ignored by about 10,000 Japanese Marines under Rear Admiral Iwabuchi Sanji, who chose to remain in Manila. Sanji committed suicide when he saw victory going down the tubes and robbed the U.S. of a good and merciful hanging. I say merciful because he deserved much worse. In the Battle of Manila from February to March 1945, the United States Army advanced into the city of Manila in order to drive the Japanese out. During lulls in the battle for control of the city, Japanese troops took their anger and frustration out on the civilians in that city. There were violent mutilations, rapes, and massacres, which occurred in schools, hospitals, and convents, including San Juan de Dios Hospital, Santa Rosa College, Santo Domingo Church, Manila Cathedral, Paco Church, St. Paul's Convent, and St. Vincent de Paul Church. 
Dr. Antonio Gisbert told of the murder of his father and brother at the Palacio del Gubernator, saying, I am one of those few survivors, not more than 50, in all, of more than 3,000 men who were herded into Fort Santiago and two days later were massacred. The Japanese were very fond of beheadings, but other unique forms of murder were experimented with during the Rape of Manila and often treated like party games. The war crimes trial witness accounts that describe this massacre upon civilian girls are too shocking to relay, and I'm not going to go into further detail, but I will tell the listener that if they think this is some kind of anti-Japanese diatribe, just search The Rape of Manila, 1945. War Crimes Trials Testimonies The combined death toll of civilians for the slaughter of innocents in Manila was about 100,000. Some historians cited a higher civilian casualty rate for the entire battle suggest that 100,000 to half a million died as a result of the Manila Massacre on its own, exclusive of other causes. Moving on, on January 26, 1945, Two weeks after MacArthur's 6th Army General Walter Kruger had landed, with no opposition, at Lengayan Gulf, 100 miles north of Manila, Kruger was receiving news from 2nd in command that he had been contacted by an American guerrilla fighter named Robert Lapham, previously mentioned, and told that the last remaining American POWs were about to be killed by the Japanese at a prison camp called Cabana Tuan. The rest in most other camps had already been murdered so no tales could be told. Lapham had been operating in the area where Cabana Tuan was located for three years as a guerrilla and knew the layout. He, to he told Kruger that the men in that camp called themselves the Ghosts of Bataan, forgotten, unknown, and pretty close to becoming ghosts. For years, said Lapham, they had dreamed of storming that facility, but didn't have the men and materials to pull it off. Horton White, a G2, had studied intelligence reports for that area and was sure that Lapham's story was correct and was aware that the American landing was already causing Japanese reprisals against innocent civilians and POWs. In August of 1944, the War Ministry in Tokyo had issued an order to the commandants of all prison camps outlining a kill-all policy that claimed, and I'm quoting here, whether they are destroyed individually or in groups, and whether it is accomplished by some means of mass bombings, poisonous smoke, poisons, drowning, or decapitation, dispose of them as the situation dictates. It is the aim not to allow the escape of a single one, and not to leave any traces behind. End quote. White presented the Lapham intelligence to General Kruger, and they both agreed that the raid on Cabana Tuan needed to be risked, and that it should be led by Lieutenant Colonel Henry Mucci, the commanding officer of a remarkable outfit known as the Ranger Battalion. Colonel Mucci, a West Pointer, was a second-generation Italian-American and commander of the 98th Field Artillery Battalion, whose job it was to carry and transport artillery pieces using mule trains over tough terrain in the jungle areas of New Guinea and elsewhere. He commonly recruited big, tough farm and ranch guys for this outfit, and their success was legend. When his mule skinners were repurposed into the Ranger Battalion, they started looking for the most dangerous forward jobs they could find to quell the boredom. Moochie was given the assignment, 
and he handpicked a sharp young Stanford grad named Captain Robert Prince to be his number two, telling him to come up with a plan for the raid. Prince had steady nerves and a good mind, as well as a born ability to lead. The risk of this raid was immense. Let me describe some of the obstacles. Moochie and a team of 121 rangers was to infiltrate Japanese-held territory to within 30 miles of Cabanatuan by truck to a small village named Guimba, which was the last stop on the American lines. From Guimba, they would travel on foot to the prison camp, which was manned by a garrison force of 200 Japanese troops and operating within a close proximity of a battalion of Japanese. From there, they were to attack and kill the guards and then somehow transport 500 weak, emaciated prisoners 30 miles back to American lines, somehow avoiding running into the larger group of Japanese forces stationed near Cabana Tuan. Muchi got the rangers together and said, I only want men who feel lucky. And then he said, Married men, by the way, are out. He then added that the chance that anyone will be returning is slim. He offered anyone who wanted the chance to leave a chance to go now. But no one did. And then he said, I don't want any atheists on this trip. I want every last one of you to meet with the chaplains and pray for the success of this mission. Services start in half an hour. Swear that you'll die fighting and never let any harm come to these prisoners. They set off early in the morning of January 28th, leaving the village of Calasio and heading east. At Dajapan, they picked up a crew of four official army photographers whose job it was to get this raid on film and in photos. That was Muchi's idea, knowing that a successful raid would be a huge boost for morale. And the film of the rescue was used by Republic Films in the making of Back to Bataan with John Wayne. And we'll tell that story at the end. These Signal Corps photographers were looking at a best or worst scenario, the best being that this whole thing was successful and their careers would get a big bump from this, or worse, that they ended up very dead. They all wanted the chance so bad they had to have a lottery drawing for the four slots available. By the time they all crossed the Agno River, they were traveling through hot, humid plains surrounded by mountain ranges on both sides. American planes were buzzing overhead back toward American airfields after bombing their targets far ahead of the group. These planes had no idea about this highly secret mission and could have strafed this convoy at any time, but didn't. The Japanese were now getting slowly forced toward the northern end of Luzon, which was heavily jungled and frequented by head-hunting tribesmen. The convoy unloaded at Kuimba and looked ahead to what they'd planned to be a 30-mile march across rice fields towards Cabanatuan and an unknown destiny. This was special ops. None of them were experts at freeing prison camps, and they were winging it. But more than anything, they wanted to get to those Americans before they were bulldozed into a ditch and burned. Each ranger wore a soft fatigue cap to prevent noise and carried two bandoliers crisscrossed over their shoulders. They had been able to choose their weapons. Some preferred M1s, some Thompson submachine guns, and some the heavier but deadly Browning BARs. By the way, Clyde Barrow's favorite weapon, as told of in our Bonnie and Clyde episodes. The BAR had a range of 1,000 yards and could shoot 550 rounds per minute. 
There were also bazookas with them, in case of tanks. Out there on the rice paddy surface, there was no danger of tanks following them and no danger of being ambushed, as everything was open on this plain. Just outside of Lobang, Muchi hailed guerrilla captain Hosan, who was commander of the guerrilla team in that region. And Hosan introduced his straw hat wearing band of guerrillas to Muchi. It was a ragged band, containing a mix of khaki wearing soldiers with World War I vintage rifles and peasants armed only with bolo knives, but all of them looking tough and capable. They all knew the back country and the location of most of the Japanese garrisons. Hosan's runners had brought the news of this planned raid to him just last night, and he and his men were anxious to eliminate a few more Japanese. When Muchi and the guerrillas left Lubang, their group now included 80 of Hosan's guerrillas. Soon the plains gave way to forest, and dark was upon them, just as planned. Through forest, under roads and streams, crawling past Japanese tank crews, and back through rice paddies, they walked, climbed, crawled, and sometimes quietly ran. When they reached the village of Balancaran, the villagers were excited to see Americans. The Japanese had attacked their village just recently and killed 20 villagers. These were reprisal killings, the Japanese believing that the villagers had helped local guerrillas. Every village meant welcome water for Muchi and his men, but also meant danger because they never knew if a villager sympathetic to the Japanese was lurking there. These were called Makapili. Prince would later say he wasn't worried about the Makapili this late in the war, because they would have to have been pretty stupid to believe the Japanese were going to win it at that point. And maybe he was right. Muchi was worried, however, that every camp in the province knew of their arrival through the bamboo telegraph, and that was true. The camp was now one hour's march from Balakaran. It was the 25-year-old Captain Prince's job to command all the details of the raid, and the pressure on him was intense. They still needed hard intel. What was the layout of the camp? Who was in what building? How could they get in? How were they going to get out? How were they going to transport the prisoners? The layout of the camp was to come through two Alamo scouts, Bill Nellist and Tom Rounceville behind-the-lines intelligence gatherers that General Kruger had sent in for just this purpose. They commanded a small company of scouts and had been called upon for other similar raids throughout the Pacific. Their recon report indicated that a constant stream of tanks and armored vehicles had been moving in and out of the gates and that a large Japanese contingent was located very close to the camp and another large group of Japanese, as many as 7,000, were in nearby Cabanatuan City. Also, the 200 Japanese crack Dokuho soldiers were camped within earshot of the camp back in the cane breaks near the river, only a mile from the prison camp. As to the inside of the enclosure, they had no idea, but they would get it. It was that same night that Juan Pajota and his band of guerrillas approached the camp and gave them a very important part of the picture. Pajota had grown up here, and he had been watching this camp. He asked Muchi when the attack was planned. Trusting Pajota, they answered, tonight, and Pajota told them, no, that's suicide. He said, your plan is good, but your timing is off, and then he outlined exactly what was going on for the next 24 hours, in and out of the camp, and said, wait 24 hours. 
Pelota had once trained in that camp, which was there before the Japanese came. He knew the layout, if not who was in what building. The leaders spent the waking portion of the next 24 hours planning details of the raid. Pelota told them that all the healthy prisoners had been shipped out to working camps and that this was a hospital camp now. All of the prisoners would be sick and weak. At 2.30 in the afternoon of January 30th, Muchi and Prince, situated in the tiny village of Platero, the first stop chosen for the escaping rescuers and their rescued prisoners, received the final recon report from Scout Nellist, and this time it was perfect, diagramming the interior of the camp and the locations of guard towers, the locations of the American barracks, the mess hall, and the Japanese guards, everything. By 4 p.m. they called a meeting and laid out the raid. Captain Prince laid out the plan in the dirt with a stick. At Muchi's signal, the rangers would leave Plantero and head south toward the camp, with Pejotas' 200 men on one side of them and Hosun's 80 men on the other. Just before reaching the Papanga River, the two guerrilla troops would veer off in two different directions, with Pajota's forces forming a massive roadblock on the highway one mile northeast of the camp near the Cabu River Bridge. At 7.40 p.m. they were to blow up that bridge. The 200 Japanese soldiers camped beyond the bridge would now, they knew, have to cross the river to come to the rescue of the besieged camp. Bahota's men would be dug in in a V formation and would cut them down. Captain Hosun's job would perform the same task on the highway south of the camp, the only other access to the prison camp. These men would stop any troops coming from the direction of Cabanatuan City. Both guerrilla forces knew that their mission was to delay Japanese reinforcements from reaching the camp until Muchi's rangers could get the prisoners out and on their way. At 7.30 p.m., the men from F Company would take out the guard towers. Captain Prince would stay to inspect every barracks to make sure that not one single American remained. The whole raid was planned to take 30 minutes. Pahota had also suggested that a flyover be arranged at a specific time to keep the guards' eyes on the skies. A brilliant idea. Which would give the rangers attacking the guard stations a chance to get close without being seen. And Muchi had agreed. This was two days ago, and a runner had reached the 6th Army to send a plane. At 5.45 p.m., the day of the raid, the rangers were crawling the last few hundred yards across rice paddies and ditches toward the camp some being attacked by red ants that had crawled inside of their clothing. But despite the welts, the men couldn't make a move or utter a sound for fear the guards would be alerted. Noises were coming from the camp, a loud bell ringing, an unexplained explosion that might have been a backfire from a truck. Every sound set off a new wave of alarm in the minds of the rangers. It was now 6.40 p.m. Dusk was approaching fast, and Muchi's men were less than half a mile from the camp. Then they heard the engine of an approaching plane, an unusual plane with twin tails headed toward the camp. It was a P-61 Black Widow, a night fighter, equipped with radar that could be used to find and eliminate targets in daylight or darkness, the first of its kind. The plane was buzzing the camp and giving them an air show, wheeling, stalling, reversing directions and had the attention of every guard in the camp, as planned. Moochie's rangers couldn't help but smile at how well this was working as a distraction. 
The attack commenced at 7.45 p.m. with the sounds of automatic rifles barking. The sounds of BARs and Tommy guns filled the air, accompanied by the sounds of bamboo splitting, windows crashing, men screaming, and frag grenades exploding within the Japanese barracks. From one end of the compound to the other, it was 15 seconds of destruction. The guard towers were silenced. The front gate guards were vaporized. A ranger named Richardson shot open the lock holding the front gates and entered, followed by a ranger named Provencher, who was carrying a BAR. Provencher and several others, following the plan, raced back towards the Japanese barracks and let loose with BARs, which literally tore apart the Nipah barracks at the rate of 550 rounds per minute. Provencher then moved toward a utility shed and raised his rifle to shoot, but before he could pull the trigger, he heard, Don't shoot! And then saw a form appear. Suspecting it was a Japanese trick, Provencher came very close to pulling that trigger. This was the Japanese side of the camp, but a hunch told him to hold back, and he was glad he did, because in the next few seconds, that man told Provencher he was a Navy engineer whose job it was to power the camp lights, and this was the shed where he worked. Provencher sighed deeply, calmly told him to head for the front gate, which he did. At the back of the camp, a bazooka team led by a staff sergeant from Texas named Manton Stewart was drawing a beat on the corrugated building that they had guessed would hold the tanks, and at the same time saw a long bed truck carrying Japanese soldiers just chugging away from the shed. Stewart drew a bead on the front of the truck and fired his bazooka, scoring a direct hit on the engine block, causing it to erupt in a fiery explosion, the explosion killing nearly everyone on the truck, and the ones who escaped were cut down by machine gun fire. There would be no prisoners on this raid. Stewart then fired on the sheds and destroyed them with two shots, the second destroying two tanks. A group of rangers ran to the American section and shouted, We're Americans! Head for the main gates! But the prisoners at first didn't understand. They headed for cover. They cowered in ditches or half-hidden behind fence posts or just ran in circles, nearly getting bayoneted when they ran up behind American rangers. Some of them thought this was all a cruel Japanese trick designed to kill them all. Some challenged the rangers, saying, Who the hell are you? Go away! The minutes were ticking by. Dr. Ralph Hibbs, a POW who had been a leader in keeping up morale, challenged one ranger, refused to leave, and was demanding that the rangers identify themselves and their strange outfits. One ranger pointed him toward the front gate and then kicked him square in the ass, saying, "'There's the gate. Get out!' Colonel Duckworth, the camp's American commander, was giving the rangers hell and refusing to leave. He was getting the rangers' faces and saying, "'You can't do this. You'll get us all killed.' Finally, one ranger grabbed his arm and said, "'With all due respect, sir, you're not in charge here anymore. General MacArthur is. Get to the main gate now, or I'll kick your ass through it. I'll apologize in the morning.' Slowly, slowly it began to dawn on the prisoners that this was a jailbreak, that these were Americans. The rangers were amazed to find that this camp held more than Americans. There were Norwegians, Canadians, Dutch, and Brits here. As they began to file out of the camp in the light of the full moon, the rangers could see the condition of these prisoners, and they were shocked beyond belief. The prisoners were skin and bones, half-naked, dull-eyed, 
and louse-infested. They looked like plucked chickens with tropical ulcers as large as dinner plates and grayed, greasy hair. It was a pitiful sight. Their hip bones protruded through their thin underwear. One ranger later wrote, They were all skin and bones. You could reach around their calf with a thumb and a forefinger. The rangers carried them toward wading ox carts. One emaciated man died while being carried. He was 20 feet from the front gate and freedom. He had had a heart attack. As they slowly escaped across the field, Muchi could hear fierce fighting coming from the Cabu Bridge and knew that Juan Pajota and his guerrillas were battling the Japanese Imperial Army encampment near the Papanga River. He also knew that Pajota was outnumbered. As it turned out, their attack had caught the Japanese completely off guard. The bridge blew right on time, enough to prevent tanks from crossing, but not enough to stop the infantry. And when the first squad tried to cross, they were mowed down by Pajota's men, who were situated in a V formation as planned. The Japanese commander then ordered bonsai charges, each charge being shot to dull rags, and the Japanese commander, rather than seeking another solution, kept sending them until nearly all of the Japanese soldiers were lying in piles in and under the bridge. It was insane. They could have found another way across the river, but this way they all died honorably, screaming their bonsai screams while running into a hail of bullets. The Imperial Majesty would have been proud that night, For Pajota's men, it was an intensely gratifying payback for all the injustices that had been heaped on their people for the past three years. At 8 p.m., Captain Prince made one last inspection of the camp, finding no one. He then fired a flare to let the rangers know that the mission at the camp was complete, and a second flare to let Pajota and and Yosun know that they were leaving. Hundreds of Japanese troops were killed in the 30-minute coordinated attack, the Americans suffered minimal casualties. The rangers, scouts, and guerrillas escorted the POWs back to American lines. The rescue allowed the prisoners to tell of the death march and prison camp atrocities, which sparked a rush of resolve for the war against Japan. The rescuers were awarded commendations by MacArthur and were also recognized by President Franklin D. Roosevelt. A memorial now sits on the site of the former camp, and the events of the raid have been depicted in several films, one of them, named Back to Bataan, which starred John Wayne and Anthony Quinn. A little bit about that film. The original title of the film was The Invisible Army, and it was begun in 1944, before MacArthur's return to the Philippines, and the storyline revolved around an American captain who had been sent into the Philippines to lead a guerrilla band. When the producer Robert Fellows heard about the successful raid on Cabana Tuan, he contacted the War Department then asked for and received support from them in terms of access to footage from the actual raid, which was used in the opening credits to the movie, as well as at the end, where actual POWs were inserted for dramatic effect at the end. The American invasion of the Philippines occurred two-thirds of the way through the film, forcing several script changes and rewrites in order to keep up with current events. The raid at Cabana Tuan and release of American prisoners was also rapidly incorporated into the screenplay with scenes recreating the 6th Ranger Battalion attacking the Japanese prison camp. Ben Barsman's screenplay emphasized Filipino nationalism as much as American patriotism. A Filipino school principal who reminds a Filipino schoolboy of Philippine nationalism 
is later ordered by the Japanese conquerors to take down the American flag in the schoolyard. When he refuses to do so, the Japanese hang him from the same flagpole, his body draped by the stars and stripes. A side note. John Wayne was very open about his dislike for communist involvement in the making of films in Hollywood. He believed, and history has shown that he was correct, that Russia was privately supporting creative film writers and producers in Hollywood who were members of the Communist Party and who could insert socialist ideals into film scripts, knowing the power that American films had on viewers. Back to Bataan was Wayne's first encounter with open communist sympathies and beliefs. The writer Ben Barsman and director Edward Dimitrik were outspoken about their pro-communist views. When Wayne heard that Barsman and Dimitrik were openly belittling the religion of the film's technical advisor, Colonel George S. Clark, who had commanded the 57th Infantry Regiment of the Philippine Scouts during the Battle of Bataan, and was roughly Wayne's real-life counterpart, and mocking him with renditions of the Internationale, he confronted Dimitrik, asking him if he was a communist. Dimitrik replied that he was not, but, he said, if the masses of the American people wanted communism, it would be good for our country. Though Dimitrik denied he was a communist, Wayne felt that he was, by the use of his word, masses. By contrast, Barsman's wife Norma recalled Wayne being friendly with her husband, at times half-jokingly calling him a goddamn communist, to which Barsman jokingly replied that Wayne was a fascist. During filming, Dimitrik and Barsman found out that Wayne had refused to use a stunt double. So they collaborated in writing scenes that they thought would force Wayne to insist on using a stunt double. Wayne was required in one scene to be lifted into the air by a leather harness, simulating being blown up by an explosion. In another, Wayne and Quinn had to enter an icy pond and remain underwater for a lengthy time, each breathing through a reed. Wayne did the stunts, but as he drank a bracing whiskey beforehand, he told Barsman, You better be goddamn sure we don't find out this is something you dreamed up out of your little head as a parting gift to me. When the film was released, it was a huge success. We hope you enjoyed this two-episode special presentation of Hell in the Philippines. There is much more history to learn about this story, and there are a number of good books out there that cover it. We will recommend a few of them, which I used in my research. We really appreciate your reviews. We really appreciate your reviews. So please send us a little love when you get the chance. Thanks. Everybody stay safe. And we'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries.